0: Song. I remember in college, one um, uh, morning for chapel, I showed up and I was a kid from a public school and public university. I decided to transfer in to a Bible college in Minnesota. I remember one morning walking into chapel and there was a table with a bunch of bells on it. I said, Oh, I wonder if someone's going to do a trick or something. I had never heard of bells. Honestly, hand bells. I'd never heard of that. And afterwards, I remember, after they were done, I leaned over to the person next to me and said, how did they do that? It's incredibly wonderful. We thank you for that ministry. If you could open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 45. Isaiah, chapter number 45. Five. As I woke up this morning, I remember thinking, Lord, thank you for a Sunday in which I could just sit back and receive the word of God. It's been a particularly busy week. It's been hard at work. I've been teaching so much and reading so much. It'll just be a joy to have my soul refreshed. And then all of a sudden I looked over and there was Dan Johnson's name on my cell phone. Um, it is truly a joy and honor, though. Have you watched the news lately? In particular, have you watched global news lately? In America, obviously, we have this very myopic understanding and we tend to hone in on what's happening in Hollywood or the heights of Arlington or something of that. But have you been seeing what's going on in the world? Some really bad things are happening right now. There are wars, there are famines. There's disease, there's hunger, there's tyranny, there's racism, there's ethnic cleansing. These things are happening right now on a scale that would rival those things done in antiquity. Right now, this morning, around this globe, there are men and women who are truly hurting. You know, so often in theology, we like to ask the question of why. That's a question that we ask quite often, isn't it? Why? Why does God allow things? Now, on one hand, as Christians, I think when that question is asked, in specific and in particular with something that is happening to a believer, even though it's difficult, amen, why does God have death or allow death? Why, why does someone get sick or infirmed? Or why, do, why does an accident happen? Yet at the same time as Christians, in particular, as I said, what happens to another Christian, we know that it's because of their good. He always has a plan. We sang that this morning. And so we rest and we confide ourselves rightly in the knowledge that that person, whatever happened is now in the arms of Jesus. It's a wonderful thought. It's easy, or maybe I should say the word simple, to believe in a sovereign God when sovereignty makes sense, even when that sovereignty is hard. Yet what happens When sovereignty, that's the idea that God reigns over all. Not in a passive sense, yet in an active sense. What happens when God reigns over sin? What happens when God reigns over wars and famine and hatred and ethnic cleansing and pestilence and sword? What happens when you have to see the sovereignty of God as a terrible thing. This is exactly the problem that faced the children of Israel. Let us go ahead and look to God, and then we will delve into the text. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we worship you this morning, and we know that so often in our lives we are reminded that you are sovereign, that your sovereignty is not simply something that comes from our understanding. It's not simply something that we can explain or contextualize. It is something that is absolute. Help us to see that now. Lord, I ask for your grace and your mercy. Lord, speak despite me. Speak through your word so that we might see Jesus high and lofty this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Sovereignty has its source in salvation. Salvation has its source in sovereignty. You say, Brett, what do you mean by that? This is what we're going to see and explore this morning. We're going to see a situation in which God's sovereignty is not only difficult, is not only confusing, is not only hard, but seems harsh seems almost unnecessary, as it were. And here in the text, we're going to see that it is because God is an absolute sovereign that he can also be an absolute savior. Because you cannot have an absolute savior without having an absolute sovereign. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 45. Many of you are familiar with the context This is, if you recall, written obviously um, by the prophet Isaiah. This is after the northern tribes of Israel had been taken away into Syria. And now the problem is with Judah. And sin and wickedness is happening. And here Isaiah comes, and he is a prophet of judgment. He is pronouncing the judgment But he's also showing hope within that judgment. If you look at the end of chapter number 44, you'll see that Israel has not been forgotten, even though they are in captivity, but that Judah shall be restored. And then look at verse number 28. Again, the end of chapter 44. Look at verse number 28. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying unto Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. Well, we know that Isaiah specifically is referring to Cyrus the Great. Some know him as Cyrus the Elder. He was the founder of the Persian Empire. It's called the Achaemenid. Um, um, this is a dynasty. Somehow, some way, he united the tribes of Persia, and he did it very easily. He then went on and he conquered the Medes and he conquered the Lydians. And in the end, by the time he died in 559 BC, he reigned over an empire the likes of which the world had never seen. So from Egypt, and Helen's point is the East, all the way to the Indus River Valley, his word was law, his word was absolute. Thanks for the history lesson, Brett. Great. Now look in chapter number 45 in the context here. Remember that God is saying Judah will be restored, but first they will be judged. But what's interesting is that judgment and restoration somehow are seen as the same or similar thing. Look at chapter number 45. Again, this is verses 1 through 7 when reading these. Thus says the Lord unto his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates shall not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight." I, that is the Lord, shall break in pieces the gates of brawn and cut the bars of irons. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places. Here we see God's sovereignty as displayed. Now how is he displaying his sovereignty? He raises up this individual, this man as I said, Cyrus the Great. How is it So often you read history and you see that leaders come and go and empires and kings are risen and they fall. Yet something was unique about Cyrus. Look at verse number one. Thus says the Lord unto his anointed. There are only two times in the Old Testament here when God refers to someone as his anointed, his Mashiach, if you will. And one is to the Messiah, that is, David, and, of course, the Messiah that came from David. The other is Cyrus the Great. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. In the spring in Persia, the gods would come down, and in specific, their pagan god Marduk would show himself from the north And because the spring was the time the kings went to war, then kings would stand by their statue, their idol of this god Marduk, who sat and held his right hand out, and the king would grasp the right hand of Marduk, showing all his people and soldiers in specific that he had the power of God, that he had the blessing of God, he had the anointing of God. Yet look what happens here in the text. God says, I'm the one who is upholding the right hand of Cyrus. I am giving him specific power. Great, God gives power. So what of it, Brett? It's more than just the giving of power. This is the exercise of power in very specific things that's happening. Now remember, this man Cyrus the Great was great and terrible, and here God says that you will subdue nations. He will loose the armor of kings and open before him the double doors so that the gates shall not be shut. And then in verse number two, I will make what? Straight the crooked places. He's going to make the conquest of nearly the known world something easy for Cyrus. We see this in antiquity and History. After all, the historian, who we know as Josephus, said and wrote of these military victories that Cyrus had. Certain armies that were sent out to defeat him ended up joining him instead. Matter of fact, there's one instance, I don't have time to get into it too deeply, but there was a Lydian army that was sent out that was larger and they had cavalry, horses, heavy cavalry. The Persians at that time only had camels, not many horses in their army. Well, Surely, militarily, the Lydians were to crush Cyrus the Great. Horses are faster than camels. Is that correct? But Josephus resorts um, um, excuse me records that the horses were spooked because of the smell of the camels and scattered. This is no cosmic sense or accident of history. This is God's hand specifically. So God raised up this man, Cyrus the Great, and led him to conquer nations. There are other things you can read of Cyrus. And by the way, it wasn't just simply military victories. Remember, this is long before the UN or some sense of a Geneva then convention. There were no rules in war. He slaughtered thousands and thousands of men Women and children. His army raped and pillaged. He took thousands of people and enslaved them. Yet it was God who held his right hand. It was God who opened. The doors. What he says, verse number three, I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, the riches, that is. Why would God do this? Remember what I said with sovereignty. There's one thing to say, God, you are sovereign, when what he does makes sense, or at least we can see the end game. But what happens when God does things, not passively, but actively? Now, brothers and sisters, we know that God is not the author of sin. Amen? But he does allow it. He does use it. Why? Look what he says here. The end of verse number three. So that you may know that I, the Lord, who has called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. Again, he gets very specific. This is not just some sense or general, very passive idea that God just has allowed this to happen. He's looking at Cyrus, and by the way, this is years before Cyrus came to power. This is a prophecy. You can't get more specific in prophecy than naming someone. But God said, no, no, I have called you by name. It's not that simply God is some sort of puppet master in the cosmos. It's not simply that He has the events of humanity and He winds the clock and He lets it happen and then He reacts. God has called this man who did terrible things and He's called him by name and He's given him the power necessary to do those terrible things. Why Look at verse number 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no god besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know that from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is when God will demonstrate his sovereignty through his very nature. This gets hard, so buckle up. Because look at verse number seven. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create, and some of your Bibles will have a different maybe translation. This Hebrew word is ra'ah, and it can be translated evil. Sometimes it's even translated as sim. Yet here we think, I think the New King James reads it as what? Then calamity. So if you think of yourself as a Persian of this, this early age, they, they practice a very early form of what we call Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism was a fascinating religion because they believe in the duality of the cosmos. You have the God of light, or and the God of darkness, Ahraman. And they are forever in this cosmic battle of yin and yang. Think of Star Wars, the light side and the dark side. It's this dualism that brings a balance. Even though they believed in a God of light, they also believed this God of light created the God of darkness to battle and to interact with. Now notice what God says in verses 5 through 6. There are no other gods. This is not a chess game that God is playing against Satan. Do you understand that? There's no yin or yang in the universe, there's no cosmic balance and force. There is God who alone is sovereign, who alone rules and reigns over the affairs of mankind. Can you imagine yourself? There you are. Your world is falling apart. You know that judgment will come. You hope in God for salvation. Your northern friends are already in captivity. And here comes this prophet, and he is speaking doom and gloom and judgments, unlike the false ones of the time who were teaching that everything's okay, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And here comes Isaiah. Isaiah. And he teaches this, and he shows you that it is God who chose this wicked man to do terrible things. That is a kind of sovereignty that it's hard to wrap your mind around. Unless there's any doubt, look again at verse number seven. Again, verses five and six show that God is alone, He's not entering in some sort of a cosmic battle, there's no duality here. It's God and his sovereignty. Sovereignty is more than just some sort of an adjective. It lies at the very nature of God himself. Seven, look what it says. I form light and create the darkness. I make peace and create. Let me stop there for a moment. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. But in Hebrew, the verb there, create, is a special verb that's used only about 50 times in the Old Testament. This is the same verb, it's bara, that's used in Genesis chapter 1 that Moses said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same with verse number 27 of Genesis chapter 1. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This verb is always and only used of God as its subject. So this is not simply a verb that you can say, I make something or I invent something. Men and women can invent things. Is that correct? They can make things. They can take the elements and we can manipulate them, even now into to the atomic level. But no one can make something ex nihilo. Is that correct? No one can say from nothing, let there be that is reserved uniquely for God. Amen? It's easy to believe that with creation, but what about what's happening here? He makes peace and creates ra'ah. He creates the calamity. Now, he is not the author of sin, and when we are tempted, so says James, it is not because God is the one doing it. It is because of our own lusts and sin. However, This is more active than passive. This is not simply an observation. This is a theology lesson. That God is the one who is doing this actively. He is displaying his sovereignty. Now you'll say, wow, that is hard to know. Because God is the one who makes peace and creates calamity out of nothing. He is the one who forms light, and creates darkness. This sort of sovereignty, may I add, rarely jives with our understanding of God. Lest you and I think you can somehow pigeonhole God into knowing exactly who He is, think on these things. Now look at verses number 9 through 13. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says unto his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman... What have you brought forth? This is God's sovereignty that is defended. He displays it through rising up Cyrus and allowing Cyrus to conquer almost the known world with wickedness and evil. Yet here, he's defending his sovereignty because what is the question that people naturally ask? Why, God? Why? I remember when I was pastoring... um, there was, a, um, um, there was a jail where I was pastoring. It was in the same city and I'd reach out to law enforcement and say if, if ever an inmate or someone needs to speak with a pastor, let me know. And so I spent a lot of time in this, little, this smaller room. It was called the intake room. This had a solid door and it had a panic button on the side and the furniture was plastic. I spent a lot of time ministering to people who had just been, um, just been arrested. Until one day I got the call, and sadly I had to sit in that room with a congregant of mine who was arrested because he had been caught uh, molesting one of his children. And I remember sitting in that room with this man in an orange jumpsuit who I had poured years into. I mean years. And He's weeping in front of me. And I remember saying, "God, what are you doing?" Right? I can get someone who's an inmate who has a life of crime, and I can sit there and say, "Well, this is the natural consequence, etc., etc, etc. Yep, I can sit and pontificate on theology of harmatology. that is the sin nature within all of us. But what was God doing there? yet my mind wandered to these verses. Now, we read these again in Paul's writing in the book of Romans, don't we? That's in Romans chapter 9. When Paul was talking about a thing that is so difficult that people reject it simply because of the difficulty, he's talking about predestination and election. And he's talking about how God, in his infinite sovereignty can rise up something to be destroyed, and can rise up something to be blessed. And of course, in that context, we know Paul uses who? He uses Pharaoh. But it's the same idea, which is why he cites from the example in Cyrus. And our natural idea and tendency is to say, God, wait a sec, that sovereignty doesn't make sense because this sovereignty is using evil. God, aren't you fair? Where is the equity in all of this? And look at how God answers these questions, these detractors. Woe or trouble to him who strives with his maker. Woe to him who says unto his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, with what have you brought forth? We do not understand his sovereignty. His sovereignty is something that cannot be entirely grasped. His sovereignty is something that has to be believed. Because this is when we start to see the sovereignty of God and the salvation of God as not opposites, as not contradictions, but as similar things, as similar things. Things. Look at what he says now in verse number 12. I have made the earth and created, there's that verb again, created man upon it. I, my hands, stretched out into the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. I, I, I. This is God alone. He's not sharing his sovereignty with anyone, and he's not blaming his actions on anyone. Well, I'm sorry, it's Cyrus' nature that he's wicked. Don't blame me. He is claiming responsibility. Now stop for a second. He's not claiming moral culpability. Those are two different things. God is never, is never morally culpable for your sin. Amen? Amen? But is God absolutely responsible for all the events in this world? He ordains them. Now look at verse number 13. I have raised him up. Who? Cyrus, in righteousness, in God's righteousness, that is, and I will direct all his ways. Now listen, this is interesting, because remember, this is in the context of judgment. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. God raised Cyrus up. He allowed this evil so that his people would be saved. Cyrus allowed the Jews to return into their homeland. and we actually see that prophecy back in Second Chronicles chapter 36. He's the one who let 40,000 Jews what, return into Jerusalem and rebuild it. He restored the temple treasures to Jerusalem, and he allowed the building expenses to be paid from the royal treasury. Now, where did he get all that loot? You think at least some of it came from the conquest he had done as he slaughtered nations? Do you think some of that loot wasn't drenched in the blood of people? This was the same ruler we see in the book of Daniel, especially chapter number ten. This is the same man that Josephus reminds us that likely we think it is Daniel who showed the scrolls and the prophecy to Cyrus so that Cyrus would do the bidding of God. Cyrus is the pawn. Cyrus is the tool that God is using. So in God's terrible sovereignty that seems unknowable and inconceivable lies his gracious salvation. But you cannot have one without the other. Now, lastly, God's sovereignty is demonstrated. It's displayed with Cyrus. It is defended because God is God alone. He will choose. He will decide. Amen? He will save through his means. But now, he will demonstrate his sovereignty through the salvation of his people, Look at verse number 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever. This sovereignty leads to glorious salvation. For thus says the Lord. Verse number 18. Who created the heavens? Who is God? Who formed the earth and made it? Who has established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verses number um, number 21 and 22. Mock those who will make idols of their own hands and worship them. Yet as I've said before, We make idols of God in our own mind. So often I've heard the phrase, especially as a theologian, you hear the phrase, I could never believe in a God that. And we mock the ancients and pagans as they shaped and crafted an idol with their hands, yet we shape and craft an idol with our hearts. And we bow down and say, look at this God that I've created. And God says, I alone am God. You cannot shape Him. You cannot fashion Him. He is not in your rubric, in your timeline. He's not in your logic. He alone is God. Now look at verse 22. This is the beautiful summation. This is the climax of this entire theology lesson this morning. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. When Spurgeon was a young lad of only 15 years old, he was on his way to church on Sunday morning, but a February snowstorm made him seek shelter in this little Methodist church, a primitive Methodist church. Well, that Sunday morning in particular, the pastor couldn't make it. So an average member of the congregation stood up to preach. There are some similarities happening. <laughs> this average... Man opened his Bible and he read Isaiah 45 verse 22 that says, look unto me. And this average man from the congregation pointed at Spurgeon and he said, look, young man, look to Jesus. Why are we able to look to him for salvation? Why is He the only one in whom you can trust? Here, in this passage, it is because He's the only one who is absolutely sovereign. He is the only one who rules and reigns on high. So if we do not see God as absolutely sovereign, we cannot see Him as an absolute sovereign. Savior. That is the kind of faith that God requires. It's not illogical faith. It's faith that transcends your understanding. It's faith that recognizes that it is God alone who shapes and controls and allows and even works in and through, not passively, but actively The question is this, this morning. Do you put your hope and faith in a God who is absolutely sovereign in everything? Or do you treat God like those who create idols and shape Him in your mind, in your heart, and say, this is equitable, this is fair, this makes sense. God declares that He alone is sovereign. God defends His sovereignty, and God will demonstrate His sovereignty by saving His people. So I invite you this morning to throw down your arms of rebellion against your Maker, your Creator. Smash the idols of your heart and your mind. Bow down in humility to the One who says in verse number 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Look to Jesus. Look now. Bow your heart, your mind, your tongue, and your affections. And know that it is because He is sovereign that He is also a Savior. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we worship You, though we do not understand why You've allowed such things, Lord. We echo the idea of Paul, certainly in Philippians 2, when he cites this very chapter, that it is to Jesus that someday everyone will bow and everyone will confess, yet now, here, we bow and we confess and we worship the God who is absolute in his sovereignty who creates light and darkness who creates things that are calamitous who works outside and beyond our minds yet who alone is our salvation Lord we look to you for hope and strength. I ask these things in the name of Jesus, my Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you.